baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. It's Pride Weekend in San Francisco, a time for many to celebrate shared identity and remember those who have fought down through the decades for LGBTQ rights. But even amid the celebrations, concern continues to mount that in this age of rapid change and rising rents, the historic queer neighborhoods in the city are now changing beyond recognition. There's actually fewer queer people on the street. Everywhere you look, we're carrying this extreme burden. I'm Keith Menconi, and today on In Depth, right on the tail end of Pride Month, we're going to be speaking to some of the people working at ground zero of this change to find out what they feel like they're losing and what they're fighting to preserve. Quick production note, today's program is actually an abridged radio adaptation of KCBS's newest podcast, How to Bay Area. You can find the full program online. Just search for How to Bay Area at kcbsradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Joining me on the program today will actually be a voice KCBS listeners likely haven't heard before. Mary Hughes. Uh, she's one of the people working behind the scenes to keep the KCBS news engine running smoothly with her production work. Mary identifies as queer herself and actually moved to the Bay Area about two years ago with pretty high hopes for what the region could offer. So before we launch into the main interview, I wanted to give her a chance to talk about how her own Bay Area expectations matched up with Bay Area realities. I come from initially uh, born in a very small town in North Carolina, and when you're in an area like that, not only are you, especially as a queer person, looking for community there, but you start kind of idealizing other areas in the world that seem to be this kind of uh, bastion of queer community. And San Francisco is one of those in your mind. Mm. And is that one of the reasons that you decided to move out here? Partially. You know, mm. there was a lot going on in North Carolina at the time that I was making my decision to move. There were a lot of laws kind of happening, the the, the bathroom law that was going on in North Carolina to do with transgendered people. And a lot of friends that I had there understood why I was leaving. They, they felt that coming to California was a better idea for me and the general happiness of my life. So, mm. yeah, it played a huge part. So you've been here for a little bit over a year now. Uh, let's see. I got here in May of 2017. Okay, so a chunk of time. You've gotten to know the region a little bit. You're living in the South Bay uh, with your partner. Correct. Did have things turned out the way you were hoping? What did you find here? Uh, well, as far as me and the partner, they turned out great. <laughs> but um... well, Opa, happy news there. <laughs> uh, but as far as finding queer community and feeling like uh, there are spaces to be a part of that aren't strictly perhaps like in San Francisco or maybe even more directly like in the Castro and stuff like that, um, it's been a bit more difficult. Money plays a part in that a little bit. You know, uh, it, it's not cheap to live in the Bay Area. Um, 
And there are places that I had heard of that no longer exist anymore here in the Bay. Now, the challenges facing LGBTQ neighborhoods will be familiar to many living in the Bay Area. The rising cost of living has pushed out many longtime residents. Meantime, the queer-friendly businesses that had served as cultural hubs in the neighborhoods, they're struggling as well. But in the face of all this displacement, there is adaptation, too. To find out more about this tug and pull between change and preservation, Mary joined me on a little reporting trip to the Castro and elsewhere in San Francisco. First up, you know, if we're going to be talking about historic neighborhoods, I thought it would be a good idea to get grounded in some history. And where better to do that than in a museum? Okay, so we're in the GLBT Historical Society Museum. We've been here in the middle of the Castro for several years. It's an old laundromat. That's Terry Beswick. He's the executive director of the GLBT Historical Society located in the Castro. I actually used to get picked up by the dryers in the back over here when I was much younger. But now we occupy it with a place to show our queer history. Terry was nice enough to give us both a little tour of the museum. So in, in the front here we have a couple of temporary exhibits. This one I'm particularly excited about. Um, Another thing that you can find at this museum are artifacts from some of those long shuttered queer and businesses. And we have a huge matchbook collection of matchbooks from different bars. So it's a good place to get a sense of how much San Francisco has changed over the decades. Uh, when I was in my 20s, uh, you know, Valencia Street, I mean, that was that was the lesbian place to go. And now you can't recognize it. It's, it, it, I I don't know that there's anything left, maybe a couple of plaques. You know, and plaques are important, but uh, it's no longer a lesbian uh, neighborhood or destination. All right, so we learned a lot during that little tour, very educational, but we still had some more questions for Terry, in particular, Mary, I think, just wanted to know, based on everything that's been lost, what is she missing out on in her new life here in the Bay Area? Tell us a little bit about what you were telling me. Uh, well, it was the question of living in an area where there is a bigger queer community. I live in San Jose in the Willow Glen area, and I know there's pockets of queer community there, but walking through here, it, re it just sort of wakes up in me this urge and need to be closer to the queer community, but the realization that I, that I couldn't afford to live in this area mm -hmm. myself, and even San Jose, of course, is a bit costly as well, but mm -hmm. I think, what would, it, what would it have been like to come here back 10, 20, 30 years ago, mm -hmm. and what kind of community could I have found at that point in time that, that maybe is different now? Well, uh, you know, I'm from the Bay Area, uh, and uh, yet I didn't move here until I was 21, and this is in the early 80s. I'm kind of dating myself now, but uh, in uh, the early 80s, you could move to San Francisco and rent a flat for a couple hundred dollars, you know, and share it with people. Um, and you could, you know, go to school and work part-time as a barista or whatever, and uh, and and get by, you know, and that's that's what I did uh, for several years. And uh, you could also become an activist, and not worry about you know paying the rent as much as you know you would have to nowadays. And I, I you know worked full time as an unpaid activist for a few years. You know, and later I took work uh, as an activist, but uh, you know, 
the uh, things are much different now. There's there's actually fewer queer people on the street. Um, there's fewer that live here yeah, okay. and work here. Uh, there are a lot of uh, visitors to the Castro, and many of them are queer. But and you know we don't ask everyone when we walk down. Do you live here? Are you queer? Um, <laughs> But, uh, but you, you definitely get the impression over time, and everybody knows that there's far fewer uh, gay people who uh, live here. We lost a lot of people to AIDS, of course, who had moved into the Castro and either rented or bought uh, property, fixed it up, um, and who replaced those people, you know? Um, a lot of times uh, they were not queer people. You know, when I see a queer person... Uh, or a couple move into the neighborhood now. Um, you know, I feel like throwing a block party yeah, for them or something. Like a moment to rejoice, yeah. <laughs> so it's very different now. Um, um, and yet, you know, I think we can kind of take it for granted. People still recognize it and experience it as a, a place, a destination for you if, if, if you've, as particularly if you've suffered from discrimination or, or alienation wherever you're from. So this right here would actually be a good place to bring up the the main reason that we are speaking to Terry Beswick today, because he's actually involved in, I guess, one of the ways that San Francisco is trying to address some of these cultural preservation concerns. Uh, San Francisco is actually right now making a, a, a pretty big push to create what they're calling cultural preservation districts. Uh, those are essentially areas that will promote this or that community uh, through a number of different kinds of works, whether it be monuments or, or building preservation, cultural preservation, uh, support that's going to be going out to various artists in the community. Terry is helping to set up one such district in the Castro. And our intentions are not so much explicitly like to keep the Castro queer for the sake of, you know, uh, having a queer space as it is to make it, you know, a place that queer people can, will want to go to and can go to if they want to. The city already has six cultural districts honoring various community groups, and two of them are dedicated to preserving LGBTQ culture, Compton's Transgender Cultural District and the Leather and LGBTQ District. But now, San Francisco's Board of Supervisors just voted unanimously to designate the Castro as the newest cultural preservation district for LGBTQ culture. So ours is about queers. It's kind of a blunt answer, but Terry admits the term queer has meant different things to different people in the Castro. There's a, a reputation of it being about uh, not queers so much as uh, gay white boys. Um, and, uh, uh, and a lot of people have felt like they're not a part of that uh, conversation. They're not part of the community in, in a way that's welcome. In. And there is a historical basis for that in terms of bars uh, going back to the 70s um, and even in recent years of, of uh, being unwelcoming in explicit uh, and implicit ways towards uh, people of color and women um, and straight people, uh, incidentally. So it's a complicated project. Terry says it's expected in the first year to get three to $400,000 worth of money. Some of that will go towards cataloging historic sites or anything from building preservation to setting up mentorships for queer youth. But one thing that he might not be too keen to spend that money on is one that you might not expect. 
You know, I actually don't care so much about the rainbow uh, uh, crosswalks and the flags. Um, I mean, I love the rainbow flag and Gilbert Baker, the creator of the gay flag, is a friend of mine. And um, and I think it's an important symbol of diversity for the uh, queer community. And yet it's a little bit of overkill for me. Um, a little bit of overkill. I mean, did you feel like there was overkill when you were watching? I, <laughs> I mean, to me, it was it was kind of neat. But then again, I, I I'm coming from a small town in North Carolina. You don't see rainbow right. anything unless you're the queer person putting that sticker on your car. That's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> so that aesthetic critique that he's making right there, it actually raises some other interesting questions at the heart of this project that make this all a little bit more complicated. Uh, the question of how do you use a government project, this top-down thing, to control something that's usually really bottom-up? Like culture, nobody tells you what culture to have most of the time. The culture just kind of bubbles up organically. So how can this, how can the city decide what the character of this neighborhood is going to be? And if the changes do just go surface deep, it's, if it is really just... Let's slap on some more rainbow flags, as welcoming as Mary finds them exactly. to be, <laughs> as welcoming as they might be. If it only goes surface deep, uh, Terry wonders, who will all this work really be for? There is a real danger, actually, um, and we've seen this in other communities uh, around the country. Um, you know, where a business district um, that's based around an ethnic community uh, or a minority community um, wants to really capitalize on the tourist attraction of, of, of a neighborhood, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you, know, you know, Puerto Rican or whatever it is. And so they'll, they'll, like, build it up and, you know, put up, up some cultural assets like our rainbow flags, um, advertise it um, as such. And some of it is organic, but some of it is kind of, like, intentional as an urban planning thing to uh, uh, monetize and Disneyfy. Uh, a, a neighborhood, and so we are actually seeing that effect already in the Castro. And the danger is that um, as it becomes more attractive to visitors, more attractive to investors um, uh, who want to buy property, uh, that the property values will go up, the rents will go up, and the people who were actually being celebrated to begin with are displaced even further. And so what we run the danger of doing is actually working against our own interests by uh, sort of feeding into that. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. This week, we're speaking to a number of people working to preserve LGBTQ culture in the Bay Area in a time of constant change. Once again, this is just an abridged version of a much longer program we produced for the How To Bay Area podcast, the show that tells you how to get stuff done in the San Francisco Bay Area. You can check it out at kcbsradio.com. So Terry was telling us about some of the important work going into creating cultural districts to make neighborhoods more hospitable to members of the LGBTQ community. And that's one side of cultural preservation. But then there's just the blunter question of how do you keep the people that make up a community physically in the community? And, uh, of course, keeping people in a place means giving them somewhere to live. 
So the next part of this cultural ecosystem that we're going to turn our attention to is housing. Your name and how you want to be identified on air. Hi, I'm Juanita Moore, and I'd like to be identified as Juanita Moore. There we go. Perfect. <laughs> we, can, we can make that happen for you. Good. Miss <laughs> Moore is a drag queen, a philanthropist, and something of a community organizer. We visited her lovely San Francisco home to learn about the Facebook group that she started, Juanita's List. Now, this is pretty interesting. Because, as we've heard, the online world has done a fair amount of disrupting of the traditional bonds of queer communities. Well, she's flipped the script on that and actually used social media to draw a community together. So this is what she did. The group, Juanita's List, is aimed at connecting people to a community of housing opportunities that would be welcoming to LGBTQ people. And it's been going strong since 2014. Moore says what prompted her to create it was the changes she was seeing in her own community. Just down the street here from me for quite a few years was Larkin Street Youth Center, and I was super aware of young queer kids coming into my neighborhood because I'd see them every day and was super concerned about what their next step was because their next step to me visually was you're going to be living on the street and you're going to be hustling. It was kind of heartbreaking when I know they were arriving here with bigger dreams and just had no way to make it or survive. Juanita settled in San Francisco in the 80s. As we mentioned, we did the interview in her apartment, and it is indeed pretty sweet. The group is now 6,500 members strong, and to hear her tell it, this whole thing has taken a lot of work. It's so much to manage. (laughs) It's a full-time job. I used to drink two or three cups of coffee in the morning, just going through the list and getting rid of the robots and, um, you know, accepting people. But it all comes naturally to Juanita. In fact, the idea for the project really stems from her own experiences when she first came to San Francisco. Queer-friendly housing for me um, really does date back to when I first came to San Francisco and was looking for an apartment. I mean, we were um, us, we were all young and kids and trying to find a really reasonable place to live. And we were all queer and we were all interested in the same stuff. So it's interesting that even at that time, which is uh, the early 80s that I moved to San Francisco, um, that we were looking for places to um, be together. And we were already considering ourselves a little family of friends, right? So... Um, it's going all the way into today, that's on, the only way that I've known how to look for housing was through um, other queers and other family. Um, because I'm out all the time socially, I started to hear all the time, like, I've lost my apartment or I need an apartment. My friend's moving here. And I'd be out at a club working and I'd look to my left and go, this guy just said he has a room available and now I don't see him. And I see someone over there who said they need a room. And and, and I'm also that kind of odd person that really can connect people and know that they're the right connection. I wouldn't send someone over to someone if I didn't think it was going to work. Yeah. Um which is um, why I started the housing list on uh, Facebook to join people together. That's the kind of show I would like to see on HGTV instead of the regular house hunters. Just mm. Juanita's house hunting show. 
Yeah. Uh, imagine what you'd find. <laughs> exactly. And uh, I mean, I, I, we, we, we've already mentioned it once, but like we were both blown away when we walked into her apartment. It's it was super gorgeous. duper nice. Yeah. So cool. It was a basement apartment, but like it had so much light in it. And so it, much light. It had a little garden outside. And uh, she has the cutest bulldog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's pretty interesting because there's another side to all this. Housing is, of course, important in its own right. But this work is also about growing a real community with strong connections. And from Juanita's point of view, stable housing and community really go hand in hand. I constantly am asking people in the group to come out and meet me. I want to meet them. I want to know why you moved to San Francisco, why you're here. And I feel like by them joining this group that I've created, you're going to become part of my community and part of my family and part of what I've created in this city. And hopefully that's why you want to be a part of it, too. And again, for Juanita, the flip side of community strength is political strength. Yeah, I want I want people to be politically active. It's the only way that we're going to progress and make change. And I want people to register to vote. And every, every voting season, I put out a voting guide. And here's where this all ties together. You know, housing, community building, political clout. Because Juanita believes that the demographic shift we've seen really has had an impact on how political power is wielded in San Francisco. Well, what I've noticed with the housing group, um, which you know wasn't wasn't the way it was when I first moved here. Everybody flocked and wanted to live in the Castro and just be in the neighborhood or around Polk Street. Um, but now, because of um, the price of living here queer people are living wherever they can. So I'm seeing people rent places that are in the avenues in North Beach and Chinatown and Bayview. Like it's not concentrated anymore. And that's that's a change that's happening in the city. What do you think is lost when you lose that concentration that you're talking about? When when the community is diffuse geographically and there is no that there, there isn't that focal point anymore. What's lost? Power. Power's lost. Um Bringing people together. I mean, in the in in the 70s, Cleve Jones has told me that it was who's who's Cleve Jones. Cleve Jones is an activist here in San Francisco um, who did arrive here in the 70s. Um, a great leader, a great friend, um, and said during the 70s when um, when a, when a call to action was happening. It was people on their home phones, like a chain of people calling each other to to rally, and thousands of people would get together um, in the Castro. So, and sometimes it was just standing on a corner and telling people and flyering or something. Um, but everyone was living within that area, so it was easy to walk out your doors and be there. Now, Mary, uh, you actually came into this conversation with a, a lot of questions for Juanita, and I think you actually got some useful advice along the way, too. I did, yeah. It, it if The biggest thing for me was just this sense of what you need to do to become active in the community, what you can do to kind of pay forward perhaps your own good fortune in some way. Do you want to move up to the city? Are you considering I mean, it? Or? When, when I walked around Castro, yeah. there's that feeling of like, oh, wow, this is really great to know that you can be completely open at all times yeah. and not feel like like someone could come down on you because yeah. of it. Mm-hmm. And But my partner and I live where we live, and that's, you know, it's yeah. probably going to stay that way unless the economy goes a completely different direction. <laughs> I think another thing that Mary was telling me, though, is that 
it's not obvious to her. She would like to contribute to some way to the community or get engaged politically, perhaps. So, I mean, what what, what are you telling young folks in uh, Mary's position for how they can get engaged? I don't know. Maybe Mary needs to start a housing group down there in San Jose. Yeah. 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 This, this might be a bigger day than we thought it was. Goodbye, Casey. Yes, another call. Um, I mean, yeah, that's a, you know that would be a good a good start is to start some sort of community thing that starts connecting people together. Yeah, I mean, I could go for that. <laughs> That was Juanita Moore. You can find Juanita's list on Facebook. Now, one dimension to all this that we have not explored yet is homelessness. And it's an unfortunate fact that members of the LGBTQ community make up a disproportionately large share of the homeless population. Everywhere you look, we're carrying this extreme burden that is out of proportion um, with our population and Um, out of proportion with the burden that other communities are carrying. For some perspective, the last person that we're going to speak to on the program today is Brian Basinger. He's the executive director of the Q Foundation, a group that's working to keep people out of homelessness, especially members of the queer community, as well as people living with HIV and AIDS. Brian says that there's a reason for the high rates of homelessness in these groups. Because we have nowhere else to go. Straight people have the whole world, but um, people who have complicated medical needs, like HIV and AIDS, we can't go to Kansas. It is a complicated request to suggest that people go back to a place they escaped from. And there's a lot of people who can't do that. They would rather be homeless on the street because the trauma that they experienced out there was so severe that they just can't psychologically go back. It's too threatening. All right. Well, uh, in the interest of rounding things out on a productive note, I asked Brian to tell us a little bit about what resources are out there to help people that are struggling with their housing, uh, especially members of the LGBTQ community. Here's what he told me. People who live or work in San Francisco absolutely should go to um, what's called Dahlia. Um, It's actually the city's official flower, and it's at the Mayor's Office of Housing Um, and community development website, and that's where they can get on a list to apply for all of the affordable housing, below market rate opportunities through the city. For people in the outlying areas, resources are fewer. Um, Housing costs are less, but it's it's also um, fewer and farther between. All right. And uh, just a couple more organizations to throw into the mix outside of San Francisco. Uh, I also got in touch with the Bill Wilson Center. That's a service organization largely helping out young people. A couple of their relevant programs would be the LGBTQ Host Homes Program, as well as their LGBTQ Transitional Living Program. Uh, Again, that's the Bill Wilson Center, good organization to get in touch with. You can learn more about that at the KCBS website, where you can find the webpage for this in 
in-depth episode that will have links to all of this stuff posted right there. Just head on over to kcbsradio.com. That's going to have to round out our show for today. Uh, before we go, I want to thank you, Mary, for keeping me company this go-round. So thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening for KCBS and In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi, and we'll see you next time. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.